Well, good morning. Welcome to everyone here in the auditorium and in the venue. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Grateful for these thespians, if that's what you want to call them. Kind of. <laughs> uh, well, we are looking at the God that Jesus didn't reveal, and... Um, it's, it's part of a broader series that we've titled The God That Jesus Did Reveal, in which we've sought to understand uh, who is Jesus as taught by the Scriptures, how does He teach us what God is like, how does that uh, modify some of the false portraits that we have about God. And within that series, The God That Jesus Did Reveal, we're looking at three different messages, three different commonly held beliefs that are actually not accurate uh, the God that Jesus didn't reveal. These are uh, three ideas that many of us hold, and I've held at different times of my life, and, and many Christians hold, and many people outside the church hold, that actually are not reflected by the Gospels of Christ. And uh, so we've titled this miniseries, The God That Jesus Didn't Reveal. Just by way of review of the past couple of weeks, the first idea is that, that we looked at was uh, this myth that uh, God just wants me to be happy, that, that uh, much... As the culture says, I, I just need to be happy, so also God's priority is that I would find happiness. And the truth that we talked about instead is that God wants us to pursue goodness and then to find lasting joy in Him. That happiness is too small of a goal. We pursue a much bigger goal, goodness, right character, holiness, and then lasting joy will be found in Christ as we pursue goodness. Last week, Pastor Kevin did a a fantastic job talking about the myth that is commonly held that God will somehow save us from suffering if we just obey. And uh, I wonder if we could take a poll right now. How many of us have held that from time to time? And we, we all probably at one time or another have held that myth that God will save us from suffering if we just obey. But the truth is, suffering's coming to all of us. As has been said, we're either coming out of suffering, right in the middle of suffering, or going into it. Good news for Sunday morning. The truth is that God is at work in the, in the mess, right in the midst of the mess. God is at work there, and He's able to redeem the mess. And we give great thanks to God for that. Today, the God that Jesus didn't reveal is a portrait of God that many people have, which is that God is always fair. God is fair the way we think of fairness. We'll call her Maria. I got to know Maria when she was 15 years old, and I was a youth treatment counselor at the Denver Children's Home in inner city Denver, and she was a number, one of a number of young people that I got to know who were there for all different kinds of reasons. Particularly for Maria, it was her criminal activity up to the age of 15. She had more trouble in her rearview mirror at age 15 than most people will have in their entire lives. And so she was court-ordered to go to the Denver Children's Home for a number of years and to do some time there and to get some therapy there. And over the course of the time though, that I got to know her, she started asking a lot of questions about faith and about justice and about forgiveness and could it be for her even. 
And I was a brand new Christian, probably not a Christian for even two years at that time, and she's asking these questions, and I really don't know Maria, but I'll do my best to keep answering your questions. And then one night I was working the graveyard shift, and she slipped me a note late in the evening on the graveyard shift, which I held on to, and I go back to and read frequently as she wrestled with these questions of grace and forgiveness, and the note read, Adrian, I was wondering, in John 6.47, it says, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. And I was wondering, if, what if you believed in him and you trusted that he would save you, but you, you weren't so sure? What, what, what if you don't think that he actually could save you because you've done something really, really bad? I mean, I believe in him, she wrote, I just have doubt that he'll save me because of what I've done. Thanks for any help that you could provide. Maria. Now what's she asking there? She's reading her Bible and she sees that Jesus says, you come to me and you believe in me and you will have eternal life. She says, that doesn't seem quite fair. And so she's asking the question, could it really be that someone who has done something as bad as I have done, as terrible as I have done, could actually be forgiven by him? Because that just doesn't seem to conform to what I've experienced in my 15 years. She's asking about this peculiar Christian doctrine called grace. It's not found in any other religion that I have studied. It's not found in any other worldview that I have studied. It is found specifically in the life and the teaching of Jesus and of his followers. Most of us, no matter where you are in your faith journey today, I would guess that most of us were raised, we were born and bred in the philosophy of the American dream. And the philosophy of the American dream is in essence this, work really hard and you can achieve it. And if you're not yet achieving it, work harder, put your nose down harder, and you will achieve your greatest possible dreams. And we love the idea of the pioneering man going through the West with a cowboy hat on, independently conquering it by himself. And we believe in these doctrines like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and you'll get just what you deserve. The universe will send you back what you put out to it, and karma, if you will, will happen to you. You send out, and it'll come back just as you deserve, just what you have given. And as Kevin noted last week, we love to be able to even place blame on someone or something when things don't go as planned, because that gives us a sense sense of control, that if I just don't do that, then I won't, I won't encounter that kind of suffering that that person is going through. It gives us a sense of control, that we can control our lives, that we will only get what we deserve. Now, you apply this to God, and here's what happens. If I do good, if I work really hard, if I love God a whole lot, if I do lots of religious activities... I will get God's goodness back to me. I will get his love and his acceptance. 
And if I don't do good, if I don't do well enough, if I'm not kind enough, if I sin a little bit too much, then God will perhaps withdraw his love and acceptance from me. He will withdraw his grace from me. Which, don't miss this, turns grace, turns love and acceptance into commodities to be earned. Commodities to be earned. That by the good things that I do, I will earn God's love and His grace and His acceptance. By bad things that I do, well, grace no longer applies to you. You know, as Jesus once said it, God helps those who help themselves. Right? Except that He didn't. Except that He didn't, right? Amen, people? Except Jesus didn't say God helps those who help themselves. It's the most commonly stated quote of Jesus that he never said. Grace interrupts all of that. The truth is, God's grace goes way beyond fairness. The myth is, God is fair. The truth is, God's grace comes to us and goes way beyond our standard conceptions of fairness. If you open up with me to Matthew chapter 20, I'll show you how. Matthew 20 is in the New Testament, the very first book of the New Testament. This is one of the Gospels of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you go about two-thirds into your Bible, you'll find Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 1 verse, through verses uh, 15. If you don't have it with you, you can just follow along on the screen. But this is a parable of Jesus known as the parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, a denarius was a common day's wages. Okay, perhaps today a common day's wages would be $100. That's a denarius. Agreeing for a denarius each day, He sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said back to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, a day's wage. Now when those hired first, now when those hired first, they thought, They would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give 
to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with, bel- what, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Quite a story, isn't it? It's quite a story of God's amazing generosity in a way that would have been scandalous to ancient ears. What Jesus is doing here is describing in parable form a scene that would have been very familiar to his first century audience, just as it would be very familiar to American audiences in vineyards or in orchards today. It's a scene in which the first century audience would uh, see thousands upon thousands of of workers uh, waiting for day labor positions in Jerusalem. Uh, Unemployment was very high in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. As many as 18,000 people were unemployed on any given day. And those 18,000 people would sit in city squares like this, waiting for the possibility of being hired by a construction foreman or being hired by a hired hand who is working with a vineyard or working well with an orchard. And um, uh, laborers would be sent down, foremen would be sent down to get some of these workers far from the city center. We see the same thing in American cities all across America, particularly around orchards or vineyards. I've seen some of these in Southern California. I've seen some of these even in Colorado during construction booms. You you see these crop up. And it's all different kinds of people, all different races and ages, all different types, waiting for the possibility of one day's wages. Sitting there hoping most of them pass by. And so in this parable, the farmer hires some help at 7 a.m. And then seeing that there's much work to be done and not enough workers to to do it all, he sends his foreman back into the the city center in Jerusalem to hire some more workers at 9 a.m. And then still, there's more crop, more delicious, luscious grapes to be picked. And so he sends the foreman back to the city center at noon. And then again at 3 o'clock and at 5 o'clock, and finally there's a few people hanging around even at five o'clock saying perhaps I'll be hired at five o'clock and be able to do one or two hours of work before daylight ends and and maybe I can get just a portion of a denarius today. And he gets those and the story is all well and good just as his hearers would expect it. But then there's this surprise as he starts to gather those workers that have been hired at different times during the day and the foreman begins paying them. And he starts with those who are hired at the very end. The first one was named Dave Malone. And Dave Malone comes up on stage, and uh, the foreman says, Here you go. You did good work, Dave. You started at 5 p.m., and there's your dollar, a day's wage here in the developing world. Go ahead. Have a seat. And then he goes to Frank, and he gets Frank, and he says, Frank, you did a great job. You were hired at at, at noon, and uh, thanks for your work, and I also want to pay you a denarius. And Frank is now surprised. He gets a full day's wage. In the developing world, that is. These are developing world wages. Do you all see the benefit of sitting in the front row? (laughs) Come on now, y'all. Come on now. Over in the venue right now, they're looking underneath the seats. There are no dollars underneath the seats, Kevin. Okay, and then finally gets Jessica. And Jessica was hired at the very beginning of the day. And she's saying, wow, if Frank got a dollar, maybe I'll get two dollars, two days wages. And here you go, Jessica, thanks. You agreed to a denarius. That's all you get. (laughs) Thanks for playing, everybody. Okay, and th- this, this is all well and good for that one who was hired at 5 p.m. He's saying, oh, the generosity of that foreman. 
But those who were hired at noon said, oh, I thought I'd get a little bit more. And those who were hired at 8 a.m. said, I thought I'd get a lot more if you gave a dollar to those who worked at the end of the day. And you can see it in this very passage, what happens. They begin grumbling. Because the foreman's generosity in this moment, the landlord's generosity in this moment, is scandalous to them. It's stunning to them that he would actually pay those who were hired at the end of the day the same as he would pay those hired at the beginning of the day, even though those at the beginning of the day agreed to the wage that they got. So they begin grumbling, and you can just imagine what they're grumbling about. Oh, they were just hanging out, drinking coffee all day. They got to enjoy the shade while we endured the scorching heat of picking grapes all day. This isn't fair. We deserve more than a single denarius. We deserve better. To which the landowner simply replies, friend, friend, here's the heart of Jesus. Even when he's correcting someone, he frequently looks them in the eyes and he has compassion on them. And so also here he's correcting. He says, friend, I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And here's the rub. I've underlined those four words in my Bible. Do you begrudge? Do you begrudge my generosity? Last time I checked, that was five words, not four words, okay? I was not a math major, by the way. Do you begrudge my generosity, God says? Do you begrudge the fact that I chose to be really generous with those who were hired at the very end of the day? And you may say, that's not fair, but you agreed to this. Again, they struggle with this, but because it was scandalous to their ancient ears, much in the same way as it would be scandalous to our ears today. You know, there's actually a parable that is quite similar to this one that ancient Jewish rabbis would share. And I'm sure Jesus knew about this parable when he shares his on the workers in the vineyard. And the parable is almost identical. Yeah, you have this vineyard, you have this landowner, and you have different workers who are hired at different times during the day. And at the end of the day, they all receive a denarius. They all receive a day's wage. But the difference in the Jewish parable a day taught by Jewish rabbis was the Jewish rabbis got to give a different punchline. And their punchline was, those hired at the end of the day got the full denarius because they actually did more work in one or two hours than those who were hired at 8 a.m. It's the same myth. It's the same myth. You got to work for everything you got. You got to earn everything you got. Same exact myth. And that's very, very comfortable for us that you earn everything you get and you'll never get anything beyond what you deserve. But Jesus' point in this parable is the exact opposite of that. His parable has nothing to do with earning. Nothing to do with fairness. It has everything to do with the abundance, the compassion, and the generosity of our God. Nothing to do with our human conceptions of fairness or earning. Now it's very important to note that the parable isn't actually about fair labor laws. The parable isn't actually about working really hard. 
If you think that's what the parable is about, you've missed the point. That's not what it's about. Of course Jesus would expect us to work with all of our might as unto God and not to men. The Bible tells us that repeatedly. Do everything with excellence if you're going to do it for God. Of course those hired at the end of the day shouldn't expect to be paid the same as those hired at the beginning of the day. Maybe that'll happen sometime, but you shouldn't expect it. It's a parable. And what parables do is present heavenly truths in an earthly portrait that people can hold on to. And in this case, the people get an earthly picture to portray the generosity of God. The gracious generosity of God to extend His love and His grace and His forgiveness beyond what seems reasonable. Grace teaches this. Grace means that we're all getting far more than we deserve. We're all getting way more than we deserve. Do you believe that? We're all getting way, way, way more than we deserve. In his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey puts it this way, and I would just say as an aside, if you want to read one book about grace, I would say read that. What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And he says this, Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. Our job is simply to receive and to say thank you to our gracious God. But the more that we are focused on fairness, the more we get stuck in the comparison trap. Would you agree? Life isn't fair. And the more we focus on fairness, the more we get stuck in the comparison trap where we're focusing on what someone else is getting that I am not getting. What I have that someone else doesn't have. And as long as we're in the comparison trap, what we're doing is we're looking side to side instead of looking where our eyes need to be, which is up. Once we get out of the comparison trap, we bubble up with generosity. We bubble up with the sense of gratitude over the, the grace of God to give us far more than we could ever deserve. Friends, God is gracious, and He is just, but He is not fair in the way we think of fairness. He did not treat all the workers in this parable equally. Now, was he unjust to any of the workers? No. He was, very, he was just to those who were hired at the beginning of the day. He gave them just what he said he would give them. He is just, but he is not fair in the way we think about it. Instead, he is gracious to others beyond what, we see, beyond what seems reasonable to us. That, again, is what Maria was wrestling with, wasn't it? In that opening story that I gave, she's wrestling well with this idea, how could it be that God would forgive this very terrible thing that I have done? And you might say the same. How could it be that God would forgive? You fill in the blank. That's exactly where God would have us, to dwell on that about ourselves. And recognize that it's true that he actually is more lavish in his forgiveness and acceptance than we could deserve. 
You know, the most defining feature of Christianity is grace. I'm not black and white about a lot of things. As you get to know me, uh, there are a lot, there's a lot of gray in life, is there not? There's a lot of things that aren't black and white. There are a lot of things in relationships. There's a lot of things even in religion. that aren't. That's part of the reason I love the Evangelical Free Church of America. It doesn't take hard, fast lines on everything. It acknowledges that some things are difficult to determine, that there are going to be some questions about our faith. There are some things by which um, uh, well-intentioned Christians, uh, thoughtful Christians disagree. But I'll be black and white about this. The most defining feature of Christianity, that which sets Christianity apart from every other worldview, from every other religion, is this peculiar doctrine called grace. And make no mistake, there are many people who want nothing to do with true Christianity because they do not like this cardinal truth. One of the reasons that many people reject Christ is because they say, it's not fair that Maria who did that terrible thing, would be freely forgiven by God in the same way as I, who didn't do that terrible thing, would be freely forgiven by God. That doesn't seem fair. It's not fair that this man who lived like hell for most of his life would die and then go to heaven. That just doesn't seem fair. And you know what that's called? That's called grumbling about God's generosity. Don't go there. Look at yourself. Look at the things that you need grace for. I look at myself and look at the many things that I need grace for. And then your heart wells up with gratitude as opposed to comparison. We need to remind ourselves that we've been given far more than we deserve. Both for salvation and for our lives today. Think of Matthew 5, 44 and 45, which you'll see up on the screen. He causes his son to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, on the good and on the evil. He causes rain to pour down on the good and the evil alike, on the righteous and on the unrighteous alike. This is the kind benevolence of God to do good for all people, to provide rain for our lands, for those who are good and evil, to provide sun to warm our planet for those who are good and evil, to provide delicious grains and fruits and vegetables for us to eat for those who are good and evil, to feed those cows. We can have some delicious cows for those who are good and evil. You see, we operate on this principle in the human realm that people only get what they deserve, but the principle of the kingdom of heaven is that we all get far more than we could ever deserve. The fact that I'm breathing today is a gift. The fact that I can stand here today is a gift. The fact that I had a mother and a father is a gift. The fact that I have a few friends is a gift that I could not earn. The fact that the Holy Spirit now resides in my heart is a gift. The fact that I've been adopted into the family of God is a gift that I could not earn. The fact that you've been forgiven and purchased by the blood of Christ is a gift that we could not earn. The fact that we have this church is a gift. And some of you say, well, we paid for it, Adrian. Who gave you the money? Who gave you the money? And we're still paying for it. You can still help pay for it, by the way. We still got $1.4 million in that note. You can still help pay for it. But who gave you the money? It's God who gives it all. It's all a gift. 
And so we go back on a regular basis and we say, oh, he gives rain and sun to the righteous and the unrighteous like far more than we deserve. Or James 1.17 comes to mind. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, the Father of heavenly lights who gives to all generously. And so we pause again and we say to ourselves, I've been given breath. I didn't work for the breath that I'm breathing right now. I've been given a beautiful wife and two beautiful children that I do not deserve. I've been given an opportunity to be a pastor of this beautiful church, which Lord knows I do not deserve. And I, I can hear people in my background saying, Adrian, take pride in what you've done. Take some ownership of what you've done, Adrian. Take more credit for what you've done. People say that to me. My background, I hear that. Maybe you hear it as well. Take pride in all that you've accomplished. And of course, we are to compliment with what God has given. We're to do our very best with what God has given. But to take pride in what I've done, to take credit for what I've done, is to miss the fact that he is the original cause of every good thing. He is the original cause of any good thing that I might do. Any good thing that you might do. And moreover, the more time I spend thinking about how I can take credit for good things I do, the more prideful I get. And there ain't no life in that. There's just no life in pride. But conversely, the more time I take to give credit to God for what He has done, the more grateful we get. And isn't there a great life in a life of gratitude? The person who is grateful day in and day out for all the things that God has given that they did not earn that's the joyous person. I encourage you to do this. Make a list of all of the ways that God has blessed you, all of the things that God has given to you that you would say, I didn't earn that. What might it be on your list? I didn't earn that. Make a list of them. And as you write down that list of all the things that you have give, been given, all the people in your life, all the wonderful promises of God that you did not earn, your heart will well up with more and more gratitude and generosity to others. God simply didn't have to give us anything that we have. He didn't have to give us his grace from the cross. He is the creator. He is the owner of it all. But God meticulously clothes those beautiful lilies of the field, and he provides those delicious worms to all the birds of the air. And so also he provides for you and me far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, far beyond all that we could possibly dare to say, I deserve that. It's grace. It's grace. And again, if I could conceptualize the difference between the grace of Christianity and the basic teaching of the other religions of the world. And I'll tell you, that is a big part of my journey toward Christ, is learning the other religions of the world. I'm not a novice up here talking about this. I can speak in an informed manner about the other religions of the world. I came out of some of the other religions of the world. And if I can conceptualize the difference between the grace of Christ and the other religions of the world, I would do so with two very simple words. The religions of the world say, in essence, it is all about what you do. 
work a little bit harder. Climb up the ladder to God, and perhaps you will gain his favor. Work a little harder. Do, do, do some more till you do, do all over you. That's what the religions of the world say. And, and, and many people aren't sure if they'll ever have their good deeds counteracting their bad deeds on a balance when they stand before the throne room of God. Now, here's the deal with do, do, do. If you stand before a judge and you talk about all the good things that you do, will the judge care? He won't give two red pennies about all the good things you've done. He'll listen to the fact that you were dealing rocks, that you were slinging drugs, that you did some breaking and entering, and he will judge you on the basis of that bad deed, on the basis of that single criminal activity. And all the good things that you've done will not cancel out that criminal thing that you've done. And so it is before our God that the good things that we do cannot cancel out the bad things that we have done before a holy and righteous God. So what does God do? He gives the perfection of his son. He gives the righteousness of his son, the purity and the love of his son. He gives the grace of his son as a substitute to stand in our stead such that the Father looks at the righteousness of the Son, does not look at our unrighteousness, looks at the perfection of the Son and says, you are forgiven. You are pardoned. It is, it's finished, as Jesus said from the cross. It is finished. You see, the religions of the world all say, what is it that I need to do to reach up to God? The grace of Christianity says... It's already done. It's already done. It's given to you. More than you deserve. Will you receive it? So did he overpay? Did he overpay that worker hired at 5 p.m.? Yeah, you bet. Did he overpay that bedside convert who lived like hell for 80 years, but then genuinely embraced Christ at year 81? You bet. Did he overpay Maria? Yeah, he did. But you know who else he overpaid? If I honestly look in the mirror, I'd have to say he overpaid me. As I look at the things that I've done, as I'm honest about things that I've thought and things that I've said, I'd have to say that he overpaid me. And if you honestly look in the mirror and say you're only getting what you deserve, you've missed the point of Christianity. Because I would bet that on that cross, he overpaid you too. This is such an extraordinary idea. Grace is such an extraordinary idea. I am quite sure that it was not invented by any man or woman it comes from the very mind of God. And we simply receive it and say thank you. Will you join me in saying thank you? Let's thank our God.
Oh, the riches, the grace, the wisdom, the kindness, the mercy, the love of our Lord who was given to the Lord that we could repay him. No, we couldn't. We never could. We never could. But you, Lord Jesus, came to us. You gave to us far more than we could ever ask or imagine, so much more than we could say we deserve. Your grace met us at our place of need. In your mercy, you have forgiven us. In your grace, you have given us so many blessings, and we just say thank you. Father, thank you for the breath we breathe today. Thank you for the health that you have given us today. Thank you for the friends that we have in this room. Thank you for the gift of this church. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you most of all that you have forgiven us and brought us into the family of God. There might be someone in this room who simply doesn't know what I'm talking about, simply doesn't know the actual grace of God that they cannot earn their way to God, they cannot complement what God has done by their good deeds, but the unmerited grace of God to forgive them. And I pray that you whisper to them in this moment, this grace is for you. It's from Jesus on the cross for every one of us. This might be the very moment that God is whispering to you by his Holy Spirit. This might be the very moment that he would say, you need to make a decision, you need to repent, you need to call on my name, you need to ask for forgiveness and simply receive the unmerited gift of God's grace. If you don't know him, get to know him because he is the absolute best thing going. There's life, there's joy, there's gratitude in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray together, amen.